Ladies and gentlemen, now boarding for Latitude, the travel photography podcast on the Improve Photography Network. And now your hosts, Brian McGuckin and Brent Bergherm. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Latitude, the travel photography podcast. I am your host, Brian McGuckin, and along with me is my co-host, Brent Bergherm. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this episode. It's great to be back on here together. So I just want to go ahead and just jump right in. Yesterday, I was giving a presentation to a group of uh, photography club at the library down here in Indianapolis. And I had somebody share with me just asking about the pictures that I had. And a lot of the pictures I was sharing basically about China. And a lot of them were some close-up portraits of people. And so the gentleman asked me, what do I do about getting release forms, having some type of consent forms? And I said, well, you know, a lot of it depends on if you're talking like traveling here locally or with these pictures in China or, or where. And so my answer to that was, well, if I decided to use these, I can still get connected to these people to be able to have them sign a consent form. But obviously that doesn't always work that way. And so Brent, I know you know a little bit about this. So can you kind of help tell me, how would you have answered that question? I would have probably answered it and said that I basically don't, especially with something with the uh, language barrier like I would have in China. I don't see it anyway as having an effective way of properly communicating what I'm trying to do by having them sign this form. Uh, with your uh, experience shooting the fishermen, this is something that they do all the time with photographers. So it's possible you could go through a translator and uh, have su- uh, have some success with that. But they may also have a different rate that you'd have to pay in order to get that release signed or something like that. So it's, it's kind of a tough an- question to answer because I think for me, especially, it just depends on where I'm traveling and whether or not I want to go through that trouble to make that happen. So what about those images, though? If you were to use them, yeah. you know, for personal use compared to using them for commercial use, sure. You know, don't you kind of have to have that? I also just thought maybe it depends, and maybe it's just because of our country. So we mm-hmm. have to follow our laws. But what about different countries and right. whatever different laws they would have? Right. So let me first start off by saying uh, my disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer. And so my opinions here should be taken as just some guy that you're listening to, uh, (laughs) but not as law fact. The other side of it, though, is I am a stock shooter. And so I do regularly uh, submit to my stock agents and what they uh, what their requirements are are fairly strict when it comes to how we publish the image. So it does come to how the image is used. And so what it ends up coming down to for me is if I'm using it for my personal portfolio, I don't see a problem with it. However, all the lawyers listening probably are going, but, 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 and I understand that. It's one of those things of practical sense and that for me, and that is usually if someone doesn't like what you're doing, usually they're going to contact you and say, you know, I don't appreciate you putting my image on your website. Would you please take that down? And I would do that. It was no problem. If they were to go through the trouble of finding me and contacting me and they don't appreciate the the image of them on my website, I'll easily respect them and take that down. But there are this the times where people will just absolutely sue you and, you know, that could also be a bad thing. So having the release uh, would certainly 
uh, hopefully anyway, prevent those lawsuits. Uh, but when you're using it for commercial uses, and by commercial, it's generally considered to be some kind of promotion for a company or product or a service, that kind of a thing. Almost always, you are, you're going to need you're going to need that kind of um, that kind of release. I did find on Wikipedia if you were to do a search on Wikipedia for country specific consent requirements, we have a nice graph here with lots of different countries. Not all of them are listed, and it shows us an idea. It gives an idea. Uh, first off, do we need consent to even take the picture? Yes or no. Uh, do we need consent to publish the picture or to commercially publish the picture? And so it gives us a nice graph and we can reference that uh, yeah, for this some is, ideas. This is, this is a great little chart. Um, first, we do need to, I think, clarify that it is Wikipedia. So, yes. you know, often I find Wikipedia to be extremely helpful and usually accurate. However, you know, it's not necessarily the most official. But uh, you know, something like this, I would definitely go for an external verification just right. because there's so many things that are potentially going to get you in trouble uh, if you don't follow the exact law. And so, yeah, since it is Wikipedia and as an academic, I hate necessarily um, uh, recommending Wikipedia, but it is so convenient. It is so um, easily accessible. But like, as I look at this, it says, so Brazil is one of the countries where, yes, you need a consent to take their picture. Yeah, to even take it in public. I mean, I... When I was doing my travel for photography for the company, uh, when I was in Brazil, I had four major cities to shoot and there were people all over the place. Now, yes, right. you know, I have to pretty much shoot it to where you don't see their faces or you can't make out who they are. Right. But there were times where I was taking pictures of people and nobody ever said anything to me about, you know, oh, you need a consent for this or for that. Yeah, this is where it comes down to. This is probably what the letter of the law is, but really the practice, they're a little bit looser on it. They just have this letter of the law so they can get you if there's some reason they need to get you. I find it interesting too that, at least in my shooting, uh, I am certainly concerned about these things. I would like to be able to use my images commercially because there's more money there than versus editorial. So for editorial use, generally you don't need the release for doing an editorial distribution of your images. That would be for like a news website, magazine, whatever the case might be. But the prices for editorial are so low, it's almost not worth it to even concern yourself with that. Certainly fine art is another area where you don't uh, generally need to have the consent or the, uh, the form signed. But that's also where in some of my images, I try and show the human presence, but not show the identity of that human. Whether it's a slow shutter speed, they're walking in front of a building, mm -hmm. or or just whatever the case might be, it, it all comes down to, is that person recognizable? Is Are right. they identifiable? As I look at this list, you know, seeing the yeses and the noes with it, it just made me wonder also, if, if you did have somebody sign a consent form, does it matter what language it's in? You know, because yeah. obviously I speak English, so therefore, right. if I have a consent form that's all in English and they sign it, it, does that make it no longer valid? Or, you know, I wonder about that because that's would, not something I know about. Yeah, I would think if they don't know English, then I would say it's an invalid form because they have to be aware of what they're signing and they have to be just cognizant of what's going on there. And if there's in a language that they can't understand then certainly have a problem. But if you were to bring a form that is in a different language, hopefully you can trust 
this the service you're using to translate that form or to to write that form because yeah, I don't know. It's just it would be weird. All of a sudden, you're signing, you're having them sign something that you think is one thing, and actually turns out to be another. That would be kind of strange situation to be in. I just think it's such a touchy topic. You know, no matter where you're at, where you're traveling, and when you yeah. do photograph somebody and, and what you end up doing with those images, right? That it's always kind of like, huh? You never know because you may think it's one way, and it's totally, totally opposite. Absolutely. But, so when I was in Paris, I was taking pictures in, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower obviously is this well-photographed object there. Right. And, you know, they have the lights that sparkle at night now that they've had ever since, I believe, 2000. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a patent, I guess, on that. There's to a where copyright on that. Co- mm-hmm. Copyright, that's right. Yes, thank you. Uh, my caffeine hasn't kicked in yet. <laughs> um, and with that, so you can't really sell images or video of it when it's kind of sparkling in a way. Right. So that made me think about, you know, other places, if there are famous um, buildings or for landscape photographers, famous uh, barns or, you know, private areas. So do you know much about that? Yeah. So that comes into property releases and you effectively need the same kind of idea from the property owner if it's recognizable property. And so, uh, this, uh, there's different things, I guess, that go into the people too, because, you know, with a person, it's their image, it's their face, it's their being, as it were. With a property, you know, the, it's still the same idea legally, but there's there's probably a few easier times along with it. But I have had experience domestically with these kinds of things. There was a time I was down in Joseph, Oregon. People should look that up. It's a great place to go shoot. Tons of barns in the area. In fact, they actually even publish a book. I think it's in its second or third edition now. They publish a book with every barn uh, in the area and maps to get there. So they make it really easy for photographers to get to these barns. It's kind of like the Palouse uh, up here in Washington in that people love to go photograph, although nowhere near as popular as the Palouse. So there's also a nice big lake there. Uh, the mountains are in the background. It's just a beautiful setting. And so I framed up this one shot, beautiful barn, mountain in the background, that whole nine yards. And so I approached the house and I said, you know, I just wanted to, are you know, curious if there'd be a chance I could have a property release uh, on this on this barn. It's a fantastic, you know, I didn't get the house. I didn't get anything else. And they were like, well, we rent the place, but I can give you the name of the owner. I was like, okay, that'd be great. So I sent a picture, I sent a self-addressed stamped envelope, I explained everything with what I'm looking to do, and I sent the release. And I got a reply back. The problem on this one was the guy that owns that property, he worked in Idaho, and he was a judge. And he basically just came back and was just like, are you kidding? I wouldn't sign that for anything. And he was just going off about how it releases all rights and all things and whatever. I'm just like, okay, you don't don't shoot the messenger here. This is just what my people need uh, before they're going to represent it. So if you don't, just say no. You know, I'm just like, right. You know, give me a break here. Uh, so it depends on who obviously owns the property and what's going on there. So that one was a no, uh, restricted to fine art sales and editorial on that particular image. But I had another experience uh, up in the Palouse area. I was driving around and saw this crop duster uh, landing quite frequently. And so I walked up on a hill and I was able to 
get right even with him as he's landing. He's just, I don't know, 200 feet away on the other side of the road. And he's even with me because I'm up on this hill. And so I'm shooting straight across to him. Fantastic shoot. And he'd just come back so frequently. Well, I was able to, of course, see the end number, which uh, that's the registration number. We call it the end number because in the US, all aircraft registrations begin with the letter N. And so I was able to do an end number lookup and I got the owner's, the aircraft owner's name and address. And so I did the same thing. I sent a copy of the picture, a five by seven print, I self-addressed stamped envelope and all that good stuff. And he was so happy. He signed that thing. He just was so pleased to have that picture. And so it can go either way with these types of property owners. Um, One last one that actually I just thought of too, uh, same idea with an airplane. I did submit to my agent and I had the end number and the logo of the company very prominently on the side of the aircraft. And so I wrote to my agent, I was like, now I'm pretty sure this is what you want me to do, but I'm just asking to make sure. I was like, do you want me to erase that end number and the logo? And the reply came back, yes, absolutely we do, because then we can use it anywhere. And so there's now going to be some images out there that I have literally edited and I was asked to strip that information out. So we take off the identifying information and we can use that image in a commercial sense now. So how does that apply though, if let's say, you know, Machu Picchu, which is one of the places that I've been to and you know that, I mean, I guess it's not really like a building, but the ancient ruins there or you know, the Coliseum or the Eiffel Tower or Acropolis or whatever. If you sure. photograph those things, you don't get a property release no. on those on those images. So what makes it different because it's not personally or it's not privately owned? Yeah, definitely it has to deal with a private ownership. And uh, for people, the expectation of privacy is also goes in there as well. If you're at Machu Picchu and you're shooting, people there should have a very low expectation of privacy. There's going to be other people at Machu Picchu. You have to just understand that. And there's going to be people with cameras. So your expectation of privacy is very low and you're going to be photographed. Now you can, of course, take as, as many ideas into into case that you look at it and say, okay, I don't want people in my image. So you have to be very patient or get there extremely early. And that's you know fine too. But as far as uh, the property itself, I would say, no, that's a historic landmark. Uh, it's not privately owned. But, you know, what's to say some of those uh, Mayan pyramids in Mexico uh, or Guatemala, maybe some of those are privately owned for some reason. Well, then it doesn't matter how old it is. If it's privately owned, you probably should be thinking about getting a, a release of some sort if you want to use it in a commercial sense. But that's the hard part. It's, you know, you don't know, okay, I'm going to photograph this and I know that this is privately owned. So I need to find this person and this and that, right. you know, especially when you're traveling, you don't know if something that is a historical landmark could right. be privately owned by some corporation or whatever. That's right. And so it's and just, it's, I just think it, it's confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this question a lot in our, uh, on the Facebook group, the improved photography podcast group where people are asking questions like that. Well, and take, for instance, the city skyline. I've shot multiple cities, Hong Kong, Chicago, what have you. If you were to zoom in on one building and get just that one building, let's say the Bank of China in Hong Kong, they could have a problem with that because you're isolating their building and it's a very recognizable structure. 
I could see the property owners having a problem with that. But if you zoom out and you capture the skyline, well, they have no say in that because you're capturing the overall skyline, which is a view for everybody, kind of an idea. So, for them to come after you and say, hey, you need to not utilize the image of our building, you know, in your picture, a representation of our building in your picture, you need to, you know, get permission for that. Well, that would just be kind of silly. But also in Seattle with the Space Needle, they do the same thing. If you isolate just the Space Needle, they have restrictions on how you can utilize that image. And you should look it up if you have images of the Space Needle because they're picky. Great, because uh, I, so. I have some images from last year of just the Space Needle. So, yeah. All right. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, you know, architecture, I think it is, um, someone will have to look this up. I think it's since 1990 in the U.S., architecture has been able to be enforced with copyright as well. Not just the fact that it's a, maybe a trademark item or a personal property item, but even the architect could enforce a copyright on the style and, and the makeup of their building. So lots of things you got to think about. Generally, if you're zooming back out and you're getting the skyline, generally not a problem. It's just that isolation, we can start to see there's uh, some problems coming into play. Okay. Well, going back to the barn that you're talking about, because I've seen that photo before in Joseph, Oregon, and yeah. it's got what looks like a logo on it in a way. Yeah. So, so the brand of now the barn that you're probably looking at, that's not the one I, sh that I shot that, that one okay. you're looking at has a circle with two bars coming off of it. Yeah. And that is absolutely popular barn. Yeah. So it's got the brand of the ranch or the farm uh, on that barn. And so that's what's also you're going to find on their cattle or their horses or whatever. Certainly that's a recognizable mark. That particular barn has almost become you know, so overused that it's, it's, I don't know, it's just crazy uh, how popular that particular barn is. But um, that was not the one I was shooting. Kind of the same situation though. Well, when I was in Rome, uh, the Colosseum, I had for years envisioned this shot of the Colosseum at night during blue hour. Of course, you know, whenever you envision something for years like that, it ends up not working out. So <laughs> here's how it ended up not working out for me. I, I got there and I was walking around and I found a spot I wanted to get to and I look up at it and UNESCO or some other company, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Not company. Um, some kind of some organization. Of organization. Yeah. yeah. Uh, had projected their logo on there. Oh, at, so annoying. So, <laughs> I, right. I know, right? Well, I mean, selfishly, I'm like, are you serious? The one time in my life that I'm standing here to photograph this shot that I've kind of envisioned for a while, and you've got that there? Yeah. Uh, granted, it was probably a better cause than my selfishness, and yeah. it's probably fine that they have it. But it just was frustrating because I'm like, that is not going to be an easy edit, you know, just no. to try to get rid of that. At but, least uh, it was so, being projected on it, though. And so you did have the texture still. Maybe you could maybe edit it. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But I was still kind of bummed about that. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about shots you get and they've got certain logos, is there any... Huge issue there. Problem with yes. That? Yes. Right. Yeah. If you're looking to, you know, maybe for a non-governmental organization, it wouldn't be as big of an issue. But let's say some cell phone company paid to have their logo shown up there. Because I'm thinking back now, several years ago when I was in my first trip to Croatia went to Diocletian's Palace. You know, this is 
an emperor from the third century, I think it is. He was the last Roman emperor to persecute the Christians, and he retires over in Croatia. And fantastic, awesome palace, and across the right on the waterfront too. The whole front side is covered in banners with for cell phones. I was like, really? This is you know, it's stupid. Uh, so if I were to take that image and put it into a the commercial sense beyond the travel, let's say uh, a travel website wanted it or, um, you know, some kind of brochure or whatever, we'd probably be okay with that since it's just a record of what it is. It probably follow, falls under more of an editorial type usage. But if you're looking for that commercial use, definitely that logo in there for that cell company or whatever the, na- whatever the deal is, bad news, you would want to be able to take it out. Now, I guess the, the whole point about this is just to play it safe, get a consent form whenever you can, wherever you're at, probably in whatever their main language would be, uh, you know, just to be safe. But I know that's frustrating. So I think you just have to be intentional thinking ahead of time. Yeah about your shots with, well, what am I going to do with these shots? And yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you just never know because sometimes you come back and you're like, oh, this shot is amazing. I want to use mm-hmm. this. Right. What do I do now? Right. For me, though, it also, the act of getting the the release somewhat ruins the experience of photography for me. I prefer to not even worry about it and I'll just tailor my usage so I stay legal uh, as best as possible. Uh, but I'll just tailor my usage of the images. You've got an interesting topic, and that is that you want to talk about, and that is the new regulations for TSA screening. And it looks like you're also going to be going for the the pre-check. So tell us uh, about that. Yeah. So uh, on, what was it, last week, I believe, on Wednesday, July 26th, or sometime around there, TSA basically came out and said... Well, I'll read it from their site here. Uh, It's implementing new, stronger screening procedures for carry-on items that require travelers to place all electronics larger than a cell phone in bins for x-ray screening in standard lanes. Following extensive testing and successful pilots at 10 airports, TSA plans to expand these measures to all U.S. airports during the weeks and months ahead. So, as a photographer... That sounds like that could be somewhat of a headache. Now, this would be really annoying, especially like when I travel to Charleston for the for the retreat. I'm probably going to take a lot of gear like I did to Phoenix. And I don't want to put nine lenses and three cameras out in the bins. That just doesn't seem right to me. Well, here's my question for that. Is a lens considered to be an electronic? Mm, good point. Maybe not. Because I think that's the first reaction is all the photographers are like, oh, we have to take out all our gear, this, that. And I don't know if they consider, I mean, I get it. I understand why they would want to scan a lens separately, but is that considered to be electronic or would it just be your one or two, one to two camera bodies? Right. That's a good, yeah, I don't know uh, on that because... The, one of the things I know they're concerned about is batteries, uh, because that can be an easy place to hide an explosive type idea. So obviously, if your if your gear turns on, you know, obviously that's a real battery in there and not some kind of explosive or whatever. Whereas the lens, hopefully they'd be able to see since it's just a tube with glass in it. Hopefully they'd be able to easily see through it. I don't know. But you know what? I did have. There was one time I was so frustrated, and I don't even remember what country I was in. It was one of the 
it was a summer that I had 26 flights in 25 days. Mm, yeah. And there was one airport I was going through and the guy took out every single lens and he took off every, every cap. And I'm like, oh, I don't want dust to get in there. Please don't right? take that out. And I was getting frustrated and I, that's totally normally not me, but I think it was because I, I had never, ever, ever had somebody take out all my camera gear and take off yeah. all my lenses. And if you have seen the way I pack it all, I put everything basically into one camera bag um, along with like a, just a small messenger. And that's everything for my yeah. whole trip. I never check luggage. You know, right. my clothes, my underwear, everything is in there. And usually I'll wrap up a lens, you know, with some of my clothing. And so it was really frustrating that he did that. Right. And so that's why I just don't even know. Maybe lenses will or will not be included on that. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. You take out, you know, your computer anyways. And some places haven't made me take out iPads before. Some do. But, uh, you know, you take out one camera body. May not be that big of a deal. Yeah. But what I'm doing, and I think a lot of other people are doing too, is I decided that I'm going to go ahead and do the, the pre-check. So just before we started recording this podcast, I got online and I spent, uh, I just went to the TSA website, looked up information about it to do the pre-check and it took me five minutes to fill it out. And nice. then, yeah, so that part was quick. And now I have to have an appointment where I have to bring in, and you can choose your type of ID. So I chose my driver's license and my passport. And I just have to go get a, uh, um, a, a finger... Uh, <laughs> Fingerprinting? Thank you. Caffeine, where are, <laughs> where are you? I just have to get a, you know ink job on my finger, my thumb, to get the print done, just to do a criminal history background check, which as a teacher, I already have that. So I'm not worried about that. I had to pick a location. Uh, one of them is the airport. That's about 45 minutes from my house, but there's another one that's only going to be about a 20 minute drive for me. So I filled out the form today and you have to schedule your appointment ahead of time. And I could see that some of them didn't have a lot of slots, but uh, the place that I'm going to, I was able to get in tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning. So less that's than nice. within 24 hours. So yeah, so I don't know the process, maybe on the next episode, I can tell you more about how that worked out, but I'm going to be flying to Florida um, as well as uh, working on uh, flying to Sweden for uh, weddings and working on some other possible trips. So I just figured, you know what? It's $85 for five years is how long it's good for. There's also a different type of uh, pre-check. It's like a global one that is supposed to be easier for helping people who travel out of the country. And that one is $100. So I'm going to find out more information about that one tomorrow because for $15 more, you know, if that's going to cover and make it easier for me on my international travels, then I'm going to go with that one. Yeah, it'd be interesting if you could upgrade and if the global entry also gets you the TSA pre-check item as well, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to global entry, that would be the one I'd probably just go for myself. Tell us what the difference though, your experience difference that you expect at the airport once you do have the pre-check in line. I think the main thing is the envy. And the what envy. I mean by that is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I sit there and I stand in these lines now and I'm envious of the people that just walk right through the pre-check. And I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, how did you do that? Are you government people? And I didn't realize, <laughs> I just never looked into it because it's not that big of a deal. Most of the time I'm traveling by myself and, you know, I, I plan out things well ahead of time to where it's like, eh, I can stand in line if I need to. 
However, this is supposed to make it easier to where I don't have to take off my shoes, don't have to pull the computer out of the bag, and it's just supposed to make it a smoother process, which nice. to me, anytime that I can do something to make it a smoother process, then I'm all over that. Yeah, I was looking into it the other day as well, and I saw they had a stat on there. The average TSA pre-check person spends about five or six minutes in the security line. And I was just like, that's mm. not bad. There's, you know, flying out of Walla Walla like I do, you know, if I spend more than 10 minutes in, in line, that's just ultra crazy. But we only have three flights a day as well. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, Seattle or wherever else I fly through, you know, you can spend a lot of time in the, that security line. And so whittling it down to about five or so minutes, that would be pretty sweet for sure. Right. And that's less, you know, ha that has to be taken out, less chance of um, a, a lens dropping to the ground from, yeah. from somebody or, or dust getting whatever. on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So I'm going to do that tomorrow and hopefully uh, save myself some time in the future. Awesome. Yeah. And let us, in the next episode, I think we'll have, probably have a follow-up with that and see how the interview went and you know, just what the process is and maybe other people will decide to do it for themselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking cool. of, speaking of follow-ups, uh, I, well, actually, I guess it's not more of a follow-up because it hasn't happened for you yet, but yeah. we've talked about it on previous episodes. Uh, I think the next time we'll be recording, you might be in Croatia or just coming back. So what's the update on that? Well, I'm hoping we can have one more episode before I head out, but it is coming along really nicely. I'm still working on a couple of transportation details, uh, but I've been able to book all of my accommodations. Almost everything is I'm going through Airbnb, and I just decided to, to go that route. Oftentimes, when I dream about traveling, I like the idea of just getting off the bus or, or boat or whatever and just finding a place. Uh, I figured since this is a, a scouting trip, for what I hopefully will be able to turn into a, a workshop next summer that I need to be a little more planned out and I need to be a little more um, efficient with my time and my rest downtime, that kind of a thing. So knowing where I'm going to stay, having it you know in the app, is that's going to be something that's going to be really valuable. I will have more details, I think, in our next episode. And then definitely if there's a chance that we can record while I'm over there, that'd be pretty sweet too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's definitely coming along really well and very much looking forward to it. Well, you're bringing your kayak with you, right? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, according to uh, Nat Geo, uh, uh, Croatia is the next top kayaking destination. It's funny because it. I, just, I just got an email. It popped up in my email this week and I'm like, oh, I got to tell Brent about that so he can bring his kayak. Just throw it oh, in absolutely. your pre-check uh, backpack there. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah. That would be... Uh, a fantastic thing to do because especially uh, if you get out on Vis Island, it's a two-hour ferry ride from Split, which is the main central city on the coast. Get out on Vis Island and you go over to the other side of the island. They have this thing called the Blue Grotto and it's pretty fantastic. You could kayak into that. Basically, it's this uh, cave that you can only get to in low tide. The sun during sunset or whatever, you know, the comes underneath and everything's just nice and glowing blue. So that'd be a great place to kayak to. The water there just looks nice and oh, nice and yes, clear. yes. So actually, before we jump in here to some of our announcements and start to wrap things up, I was just was thinking for a second. I'm like, okay, 
so not everyone's going to do the pre-check for the TSA. So what would be the most convenient for people that choose not to do that? And to me, I immediately thought of, well, what type of of luggage or bag are you you going to have? And Mm. I've been doing a bunch of bag reviews uh, in the past. And currently, I have a bag that I'm checking out that I'm probably going to take with me to Sweden. And it's from Think Tank because... I just, they just, they make good stuff. And this is the airport takeoff version two, which Hmm. is a good size uh, bag that also has shoulder straps, which is something that I've been wanting to experiment a little bit more with just because, you know, most of the time going through the airport, you can just drag and pull your luggage. But I, I noticed when I was at the improved photography retreat in Arizona, whenever we got to a spot where there were stairs, everyone else just had their hiking backpacks on. And I'm like, it'd be nice to just have that, you know, have some shoulder straps on my bag. So I'm going to check out this one and, and do a review, which will be on the improvedphotography.com website uh, sometime here in the near future. But what I love about this style bag, so it doesn't have to necessarily be a think tank, is how you can just quickly unzip the top and just flip it open and everything just falls right into the slots. And so I think if it does turn out that you will have to pull out all your camera lenses and everything, a bag like this where you just zip and flip and everything's right there, I think that's going to ease the process, you know, within 10 seconds, really. You know, we're kind of complaining about how much of a headache this is going to be. But if you've got the right type of bag, within 10 seconds to pull things out and then 10 seconds of putting it back, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal if you've got a good bag. But yeah, if you this just is got definitely a easy bag, access yeah, and uh, looks looks really good. Well, it's just, just something about that style, which a lot of bags mm-hmm. have, compared to like a messenger bag where you might have one lens under another lens. And so you Possibly, have to kind of, yeah. you know, move a flap like this or that. But right, I wanted to make sure cool. I mentioned that. Yeah, that looks time. good. All right. One quick announcement too that I have. In my inventory for the rental company, I do have the Sigma 14 F1.8 coming. So the Canon is actually here. I just need to unpack it and all that stuff. But unfortunately, the Nikon has been backordered. So I'm doing both uh, brands on that lens. Very much looking forward to it. It's probably going to be a fantastic astro lens. So uh, be watching whether it's, uh, I think I'm going to put it in Nick Page's hands so he can do a review on it. And then I'll be doing my own reviews as well, hopefully before I head out to Croatia. That's an exciting lens to come through. I'm looking forward to having that in the inventory. And I saw Jeff Harmon's post the other day and it's Harmon, not Jim. Yes. Not Jim Harmon or Jeff Harmer. That's right. That's <laughs> um, right. <laughs> there's kind of a, a joke there with, you know, joining the Facebook group, which we hope that uh, if you have not yet joined the Improved Photography Podcast Facebook group, um, you've, you've got to be able to know somebody's name, I believe. Right. Yeah. You got to answer a question for, uh, one of the, uh, hosts. And so, uh, me or Brian, uh, I think we're looking for first and last name, uh, or, uh, certainly any of the others on the other podcasts as well. Yeah. Well, so Jeff had made a post about how he was excited because you have a bunch of, uh, Eclipse gear coming in that you can just rent out, right? Yeah, so it's pretty much all rented out. I was going to look I know, at that. That was, that was kind of a joke, but <laughs> I, I guess just in my own mind. Yeah, what I what I did was if you rent a lens for that gets to four hundred millimeters or longer uh, for a full seven days, uh, you have you'll get a 
solar filter with that order if August 21 is part of your week that you rent it for. So uh, I think everything is taken. Um, I might have one lens left that I'm going to be reserving for myself because I'm no longer going on that big trip. And um, my goal is to head on down there and take a look right where I live here in Washington. Uh, we're going to get 96.7% coverage. The problem that we're going to have, I think, is right now we've got a lot of um, smoke coming through from the forest fires that are happening uh, here in Washington State and up in British Columbia, uh. and that's getting down into Oregon as well. So if that continues, it might just ruin it for us because we're not going to be able to see with clarity the sun and the coronal mass. So that'll right now, that is our biggest challenge. I don't think we have much of a problem with clouds uh, usually in that time frame, but we'll see how that goes. I know Jeff made a post on the Facebook group about how he kind of waited to the last minute to try to yeah. find something to rent. And everybody uh, apparently is out of anything that the, you would need. The The filters yeah. uh, most folks are out of. Uh, yeah, the long lenses people are out of. So definitely uh, this is not the time to buy or, or rent. Uh, people have made their plans. So we like to end each episode just kind of talking about a dream destination, some place that we would like to go to or or check off someday from our bucket list. So Brent, what is your dream destination? My dream destination is an island called Ein Hollow. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's in the Orkney Islands off of uh, Scotland or in Scotland, excuse me, and uh, just north of the, if you want to call it the mainland of Scotland. And the reason I uh, chose this, actually a listener suggested this. They sent this to me uh, on a quick little message. And I looked at it and I was like, that is so awesome. So it's this tiny little island that was abandoned, I don't know, early 1900s, somewhere in there. And because of the nature of the the tidal waters, the the channels that are going around it and the like, it's just really difficult to get to because the water is just constantly churning around. Uh, and about it. And so even getting to it on your own is is quite risky. But there is a one chartered boat per year. And so you have an opportunity once a year to get out to this little island. And it's only about a half kilometer off of uh, this uh, this mainer, this larger island. Uh, trying to look at the name, they're just calling it Mainland Island. But um, it's only about a half a kilometer off the, the mainland island. It's literally called mainland. So I'm not trying to just say, you know, a big landmass. So it seems like it would be accessible, but it's just this perfect little place. There's nobody, there's not been anybody living there for over a hundred years and you can only get there once a year. So that, that would just be really cool. That's, that does sound like a cool place. But for me, uh, what I am interested in is National Geographic has these, what they call National Geographic Expeditions. And it's kind of trips that they have that are organized and you go with a group and all. But uh, if you haven't checked that out, check those out because there are so many on there that just sound really cool. My goal is to hit all seven continents some sometime before my life ends. And I've got four and they do have a trip to Antarctica. And I'm like, well, that might be kind of the easiest way to check that one off. But one that kind of I came across that pops out to me is one of their National Geographic exped expeditions. It's a Vienna to Prague hiking adventure. Oh, that would be awesome. So yeah, it's nine days of just uh, hiking through a lot of UNESCO areas. And I just think that would be epic. 
there's limitations to group sizes. I think this one is like a max of 16 people. Uh, and you know, it is on somebody else's schedule that you kind of have to go with and follow, but that sure. might be better really for a lot of people. Uh, the cost for a trip like this, uh, this one, it even shows you in, in 2017, it was $4,695 mm. in wow. 2018, it's $4,795. And I do not have that money, which is why mm -mm. it is a dream destination. Yes. This is also a great site just to kind of help you when you're planning out your own trips, because you can look at, here's what they're doing and you can kind of pick and choose and be like, okay, well, oh, I didn't know about that. Maybe I should look into this or, um, you know, or kind of get some ideas just for whatever else you want to plan on your own. So if you haven't been to, uh, it's nationalgeographicexpeditions.com, get on there and check it out because they've got uh, amazing uh, itinerary and uh, different types of trips, whether it deals with on land or by ship or family or or students also for those of you that are younger that are listening to this so yeah national geographic expeditions awesome and hopefully you, you mentioned you want to go to antarctica i just looked it up there's actually uh december 4 2021 there's a total solar eclipse in antarctica so maybe they can do a national geographic expedition down there hey that'd be that'd be fun there there we go so we're about to uh, close, Brian, but we like to end by saying goodbye in some other language. So what do you have for us? All right. Well, if I'm going to do this uh, hiking trip someday from Vienna to Prague, uh, in, in Czech, goodbye is, it's spelled A-H-O-J, but it's pronounced ahoy. Something, some at least very close to that. That's how the Google Translator <laughs> pronounces it. So, ahoy. Awesome. I don't think you're supposed to say ahoy, mateys. You're just no. supposed to say ahoy. So, yes. <laughs> in, in, che awesome. in Czech, ahoy. Awesome. I'm going with uh, something related to my uh, destination as well. That's Scots Gaelic, and that's Marsinleet. Marsinleet. M A R S I N L E A T. Marsinleet. I hope I'm getting that right. <laughs> but feel free to correct me if you want. That's fine too. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Look for us again here in another uh, couple of weeks. And um, so long for now.